Uh, today's uh, scripture memory is going to be Second um, Peter one, one through eleven. If you guys want to turn with me? It says Simon Peter, a servant and apostle to Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. I'm sorry, never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. lights for you. Um, good morning. So um, I'm not Mitch, obviously you know that. Uh, I'm Michael Smith for those of you who don't know me or haven't met yet. Um, and Mitch is off camping with his sons today. But even when he's back next week, uh, I'll be up here for the next several weeks and we'll be walking through Second Peter. So, uh, as Golden just read, we'll go through some of the first part of it today. But, but I'm excited about the next several weeks um, for us to dig through this together. And and I just I love taking a, a little packaged piece of the Bible. You know, not necessarily bouncing around here and there. Um, and, and you get a lot of this at Three Rivers. We don't bounce around and, and pick a verse here and a, and a verse there. We apply our our minds and go to a specific passage in context and work through it and wrestle through it. And that's what I like to do um, in my own personal study, and I'm excited to do that here with you guys. And so uh, through July 1st, probably, we'll be walking verse by verse, uh, paragraph by paragraph through Second Peter. And so I'm really excited, I guess, mainly because if you were here on April 22nd, I think, um, you remember that myself and, and my wife and Brad and Michelle Hankins announced to you guys that uh, we feel a, a, a tug from God, a direction from God to leave Rome and to go somewhere in the Pacific Northwest and to uh, start a church. We've been praying about that a long time and, and feel a lot of inclination from God in that direction. And if you remember when I was kind of telling my side of that story, um, one of the... Uh, one of the things that was critical for me in that passage um, or in that process is, was Second Peter chapter 1. Okay? And um, forgive me, I'm, I talk really loud and I feel like I'm reverberating. I think I see some people back there that look like their, their hair is going to part a little bit. Um, so I'm, I'm sure even without this mic you could hear me, but unfortunately we couldn't record it, I guess, if I didn't have it. Um, so a critical passage for me in that whole process of of trying to discern what God was doing and calling us to um, was Second Peter one three through eleven what we just read and uh, and so you may also remember another piece of that from my perspective is I've always felt the weight of James three one where James says not many of you should desire to be teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, brothers, because you know those of us who teach will be, will be held to a stricter judgment or a stricter standard. 
And um, that's always weighed heavily on me. And so I felt this tension of even in the joy of obeying what I feel like is the call of God to go and plant a church, I feel this this nervousness about could I go week in and week out working through the Bible and, and trying to teach the house of God, teach the people of God what the Bible says. And um, I've expressed that to Brad and mentioned Emmett and and uh, in a very wise and loving way, their response was, let's do it. You know, why don't you take a chunk of weeks and work through it? Because it's one thing for me to stand up here once every four or five months and tell you, here's what I've been chewing on for four months, these two verses. And, you know, it's what God has really been clear to me about. It's another thing to go week after week after week after week and, and each week to come in in tune with the spirit and walking with Jesus and and being faithful to his word and not just pulling out of my back pocket whatever is most readily at hand, but really having to wrestle with the text. And so so I, I appreciate these guys and I was very excited and very fearful when they said, Why don't you take a, a few weeks and, and go through something with us? And so I thought, what better portion of scripture um for us to walk through than the one that has been rocking my world for six months, but one specific part of it. And, and it was good for me to have to take that and work through the rest of the context and see how that rolls out into all the other things Peter is going to say and how that applies to us as Three Rivers Community Church. So all that big introduction to say, I'm excited about the next six weeks to go through this with you guys, and I hope you are too, and, and I trust that God, by his spirit, will speak through his word, and he will show us his son, and um, that we will be the better for it. So so here's how we're going to do it. Let me give you a, a, kind of an overview of what I want to do the next six weeks. There's a great moment in one of my favorite books probably of all time, and that's Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. Um, and he has a lot of collections of short stories and whatnot. But but there's one story in particular where uh, Sherlock Holmes is talking to Dr. Watson, and Dr. Watson says, how, how do you see all these things? How do you know, uh, deduce all these things from just a little scrap of evidence, and um, or scrap of evidence? And Sherlock Holmes looks at Dr. Watson and says, I see no more than you see, but I have trained myself to notice what I see. And that, for me, is, is a key part of going to the Bible. Okay, that's how I like to, to go through the Bible, and I hope it is for you too, or I say that's how I like to do it. That's a goal for me, to go through the Bible and notice what I see. Um, because I am probably, like a lot of you, I tend to focus on the quantity of my reading, right? I tend to just pour through page after page of Scripture and think, wow, I just cleared through numbers. Tick it off, you know, let's go Deuteronomy. Um, and I don't, I don't think about the quality of my understanding. I just focus on the quantity of what I'm digging through. And, and so I think it's healthy and good and, and a necessary principle of Bible study that when you go to the Word, notice what you see. Don't just read through it and say, oh, that's nice, and close it and forget what you just read. But notice it. Take the time to absorb what you see. And so that's what I want to do in Second Peter, um, is just go through passage by passage, and let's notice. Let's just stop and meditate on what we see and notice it, and, um, and then learn what we should do. How should we live in light of what we see there? So I'm always... Uh, very aware that I am weak in a lot of ways, and I, I have a lot of um, bad habits and a lot of tendency to run off and chase rabbits, and so I can't stand up here and just do this. And so I, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, um, because as Brad said in, in communion, and, and as you are aware, we don't do this in our own power. We can't come to this word and, and just be intellectual and just be really smart and pull out spiritual truth. We are utterly dependent on God to reveal that to us by his spirit. So let's pray and ask for that, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for Second Peter. Thank you um, for the Bible as a whole and what you have given us there. And I pray that as we come together over the next few weeks, as we look through this, that you would be faithful to to send your spirit, to open our eyes, to see your son 
through this word. Um, Father, I pray that we would become more like you, that we would live lives that honor you and that um, depict the love of Jesus in everything that we do. And Father, now as we look at this together, I pray that that you would guard me from saying anything that, that is not faithful or true to your word and that you would just come and speak and show us what you have already said and may we understand it and may we live in light of that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, we're going to go through four verses today and just, I, I think these may be the most densely packed four verses in all of Second Peter. So we're going to start with just a small chunk and dig through it and try to mine out all this goodness. And then the next few weeks, we'll just kind of unpack the implications of that as Peter does throughout the rest of the book. So um, let's look at Second Peter 1, 1 through 4. And I'll just read that one more time so we can think through it together. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's where we're going to go today, and, and we're just going to step through it and notice what we see. So, the first thing we see in the text is that the author is Peter, the apostle. And you remember Peter. This is Peter the zealot, as I call him. Uh, he, he's the guy that's quick to jump on board with Jesus. He's the guy that's quick to, to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, he, he's the one who pulls out his sword in the garden and cuts off the ear of Malchus. He says, you don't touch Jesus. You don't mess with him. I'll, I'll kill you. Um, so he's very passionate, he's very outspoken and quick-tempered, and he's often bumbling, and, um, but a very passionate guy. He's the one who climbed out of the boat when Jesus was walking on the water, and he said, Lord, tell me to come to you. I, I want to walk on the water to you. And Jesus said, come on. And so he gets out, and remember, then he looks around and he says, oh, shoot, what have I done? Yeah, whoops. Um, so, but... But what you see as you, as you walk through, I love Peter. I just admire him so much because there's so much black and white in the world to him. I mean, he looks, he says, Jesus, you said this, and so I'm going to do it. I'm going to live this. I'm going to chop off a guy's ear because you're the son of the living God and nobody touches you. You know, it's just a lot of passion there, even at sometimes misdirected. Um, but you see through Acts that Peter becomes really the spokesman of the apostles. I mean, he, he is the main preacher at Pentecost, and, and he is kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the early church. And I, I find it amazing, right out of the gate here, that he says, that Peter, the Peter that walked with Jesus, he, is, he addresses his hearers as those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, I hope that amazes you. That should amaze you because, again, this is the Peter who walked with Jesus and was with him at the transfiguration. We'll see later in chapter 1. And this is the Peter who was filled with the Spirit at Pentecost and who saw thousands upon thousands turn to Christ as he preached. And he looks at normal, ordinary Christians and he says, you guys have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. There's no such thing as a super Christian. Okay, if you are in Christ, you have a faith of equal standing with Peter and Paul and John. And so you may say, how is that? How can that be? These guys who walked with Jesus, who, who knew him, who God used to establish the church, how is my faith of equal standing with those guys? And he answers that for you in the next phrase. So just walking through the text, the next phrase explains how that is. We have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles. How? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the biggest questions you will ever have, have to answer or have to ask is, why do I think God likes me? Why, if there is an all-powerful, 
holy, righteous judge of the earth who looks down and he has a standard that is unobtainable by sinful humans. Okay? And he could sneeze and just vaporize the universe. Right? How, what makes me think that I'm okay? What makes me think that he's not going to appear one day and say, flick, and I'm gone? What is that? And, and if you answer that question, I'm a good guy. I, I don't do this. If that's your answer, you do not have a faith of equal standing with Peter. Okay? You, you have a faith built on your own goodness, on your own merit, and that's not biblical faith. That's not where we stand. That's not where our confidence before God comes from. The foundation of biblical faith is not my righteousness, but it is, as Peter says, the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, my hope and trust and confidence before God is not that I have done anything good, but that Christ has done everything good. And it is because of his righteous life and death that I have any hope at all. So he took on my sin, this substitutionary atonement. Okay, Christ, who was perfect, took on my sin so that I, who was not perfect, could take on his righteousness. And that's my hope. That's the foundation of my faith, and it was the foundation of Peter's faith and of Paul's faith and of John's faith. And any true believer who has ever lived, their hope is not because they are righteous. We don't have hope because we are good. We have hope because Jesus is perfectly righteous, and he died to give that righteousness to us. So don't miss that. That's where you stand, Christian. You stand right beside Peter and John if your hope is in the righteousness of Christ and not in who you are and the fact that you're here on Memorial Day weekend while some people are at the lake getting drunk. If you hope in that, you do not have a faith of equal standing. You do not have a faith that matters. Okay? You, need a, you need faith that looks at Jesus and says, I have nothing to offer, but you have everything. Be my everything there. Give me that righteousness. Um, so, verse 1. Uh, let's move to verse 2. This is interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to try not to just stand up here and be amazed, okay? That's a real bad habit of mine, that I just read a passage and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Don't you get it? You know, I'm going to try to really explain what I see in the text, and hopefully you see it as well. But but I'm amazed at this logic that Peter applies here, this this line of thinking um because if you follow what i just said if you believe what i just said then i'm about to say something that may strike you as paradoxical okay Uh, if you agree with me that our hope is only in the righteousness of jesus with no regard for how righteous we are then it's going to strike you maybe a little funny that i say as we go through Second Peter, we're going to see a large emphasis on righteous living, practical external holiness, that I should do righteous things. I should be careful how I live. Um, we see that in, in the next couple of verses. I mean, we, we notice that Peter says we should supplement our faith with virtue. And knowledge and self-control, that's a real practical kind of thing, right? And steadfastness and godliness. Um, We see in chapter 3 that we as believers should live holy, godly lives. That we should confirm our calling and election by practicing these things that we're going to see in the next few verses. And that we should be diligent to be found without spot or blemish when Christ returns. And so that... That maybe creates a paradox for you. How, how, does, how can we say my righteousness is based on Christ's righteousness with no regard to what I do, but then we see Peter putting so much emphasis on how we should live and what we should do. And I guess another way to ask it, why does my holiness matter if I can't trust in it for salvation? What good does it do me? What does it matter? That's next week. So I hope... Put that tension in your mind and then send you on your way, right? Um, We're going to deal with that next week. But I just want to acknowledge it up front because I I hope you're thinking with me and that you see 
there's a statement. But then we're going to talk about being holy and righteous. How do those things fit together? So, uh, but it, I think overarching all of that. In fact, Peter, in all of his talk about us being holy and righteous, he bookends this letter with references to grace and knowledge. Okay, so we see that in verse 2. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then he ends the letter. The next to last verse says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Please, bookending all this talk about practical holiness with grace and peace and knowledge and grow in those things. And I think that's really intentional. That's not a throwaway, you know, hey, here's the standard apostolic greeting. You know, make sure apostles, when you're writing a letter, say, hey, I'm Peter, and here's my standard apostolic greeting, and now let's get into the, the real important stuff. No, there, there's not a standard apostolic greeting. There is a, an intentionality in what he's saying there. He's thinking through that. Um, and here's what, I, here's what I think he has in mind. That is, if you are going to persevere in the Christian life, if you're going to walk in practical holiness and godliness, if you're going to live in grace and peace in Christ, you must know Jesus and be ever growing in that knowledge. Okay? So he says, in fact, um, let's just move on to the next two verses because I think these all tie perfectly together that he's going to elaborate on that. So if you're going to walk in practical holiness, you're going to do some of these things that he's going to tell us to do in this book. It's going to be because you are growing in the knowledge of Jesus. And so let's look at three and four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So before we make that connection of knowledge with holiness, don't miss the first part of that sentence, okay? I don't want to gloss over the fact that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Let that land on you for a minute. Because if you're like me, I am often discouraged at who I am. Okay? I, I spent several years in college and after college just, I mean, if, if you did a whatever those word diagrams are where the bigger the word, the more often it's referenced, you know what I'm talking about? Like a word cloud. If you did one of those of my prayers from like 2002 to 2008, the, the biggest word would be, why have you made me like this? That's how I cried out to God. Why did you make me undisciplined? And I am such a shiny object kind of person and I'm not consistent. And I just, I get in a room full of people and I can just bounce from person to person and walk out and have no idea what we just talked about. You know, I just, I just kind of bounce off the walls and there's not a, you know, I look at some guys and I just think this guy was born for discipline. I mean, he just he just exudes it. You know, it's he's so consistent and just everything he does is meticulous and perfectly detailed. And I am like the kid with crayons, you know, just scribbling on the paper and on the walls and whatever. And I, I have wrestled with that because I've I've understood enough of the gospel to know. Um, what we're going to see in a few minutes, that God has given us his word for a reason. And, and God most frequently speaks through the Bible, through his word to his people. And so when you're the kind of person that I am, and your goal is to have a consistent Bible study and a consistent prayer life and to exercise regularly and to you know, maintain a budget and, and to have a date night with your wife once a week, when that's your goal and you're like me, it's real easy to get discouraged real fast, right? Because I'm, I just look and I see a string of broken, uh, I guess, resolves, you know, that I'll resolve that I'm going to do this. And six weeks later, what happened there? You know, it just kind of fizzled out. And so I wrestled with this for a long time. Lord, how am I supposed to be holy? How am I supposed to grow as a Christian and become mature and, and walk with you and and live out this consistent godliness if I'm like this, if I'm the guy that just keeps falling off the horse to the left and to the right, 
How am I supposed to do that? And so I come here and I see his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And so for a guy like me and maybe a person like you, that is a hope-giving thing that he has given us everything. He has granted it to me to, to live a godly life. But notice how he has given it to us. He has given it to us through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, we read the ESV. Uh, that's just the Bible that I read most regularly and am most familiar with. But I like to go to other translations sometimes and just read how they phrase things. Um, because you understand all English translations are just that. Translations of Greek and and translators make choices about how to phrase things and how to connect things. And so I noticed the New American Standard actually connects verses two and three. And I thought it was significant. It says grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. I think that's significant because what it does is it it makes verse 3 the ground of verse 2. Verse 2 kind of sits on verse 3. In other words, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus because that's how God gives you everything. That's how God provides everything to you, through the knowledge of him. It's the means by which you receive everything you need to live a godly life. So grace and peace and whatever else you need to live a godly life comes through the knowledge of Jesus. And so keep that in mind. Grace and peace be multiplied to us, seeing that he has given us everything that we need through the knowledge of him who called us. Um, I think one just sidebar here, one implication of that statement is that theology matters. Some of you are not theologically minded and And let's make a distinction here between being theologically minded and being academically minded. Okay, that's a helpful distinction because I don't think a lot of people make it. Um, But I hear a lot of people say things like Christianity is not about theology. It's about Jesus. Or I I don't I hate theology. I just love Jesus. And I hear those things and, and I'm kind of perplexed. And and so I think this verse is I'll tell you why I'm perplexed in a second. I think this one implication of this passage is that your theology matters, that you apply your mind, that you understand Jesus matters, not as an end in itself, because we're going to see in chapter two that there is a way of knowing Jesus that has zero influence on the eternal state of your soul, has zero effect on on the the state of your soul, um, but you know him. But I think what Peter's really saying here is that, that if everything that we need is provided through the means of knowing Christ, then it really matters that we know the real Jesus. Okay? Now I want to give you an analogy here. If you were a newlywed and you were going on the newlywed game, and let's say the prize was a million dollars. Wow, I could win a million dollars to get my marriage off the ground. That'd be great. The whole premise of the game is how well do you know your spouse, Right? They're going to ask you questions about your spouse. They're going to, you're going to have to you know, give you weird scenarios. And how would your wife react or respond in this situation? And what would your wife prefer in this situation? And so what would you do to prepare for that? How would you get ready for the newlywed game? I don't think you would close your eyes and you would say, I love football. And all I want to do is watch football. And I think it would be really cool to have a wife who loves football. And wants to watch it with me. And that would just make for a perfect marriage. And you know, in fact, I find it difficult. I can't reconcile in my mind a wife who doesn't love football. That doesn't make any sense to me. So that can't be my wife because of how much I love football. That's not how you would prepare, right? What would you do? You would go to your wife and you would say, hey, you like football? And she would say, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. My wife loves football. That's great. Um, probably more than me. So, but you would go, do you like football? And she would say yes or no, and you would, you would kind of make a note of that. Okay, wife, 
likes football. That's good. I know that now about her. Um, and, and you would you would interact with her. You would talk with her. You'd take her out on dates. You would go to the park. You would get in the car and you would talk and you would say, hey, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Tell me this. You would watch her react to certain things in her life. Okay. And you would make a note. That's how she reacts when when I don't put the laundry in the laundry basket. This is how she reacts. Note. That's something I know about my wife, right? So that's how you would you would get to know her to, in preparation for this for this newlywed game. And in its truest sense, and in, in, you know, separating it from all the baggage of academicians who who make theology into this intellectual exercise, I think in its truest sense, that's what theology is. It is knowing Jesus. It's asking questions and, and just watching him in situations and seeing how he responds. And it's talking with people who know him. Either talking with them through reading the historical eyewitness accounts of what he did and said or what God did in the Old Testament. Or talking with fellow Christians who walk with him today and learning about him from them. And so I cringe when I hear people say, I don't care about theology. I just love Jesus. I want to say, which Jesus? Which Jesus do you love? Tell me something about him. Tell me what you love about him. Why do you love Jesus? Because it matters that that you don't just love your idea of Jesus that you've made up. Or, Or when somebody says, Christianity is not about theology, it's about Jesus. I want to respond, that's like me saying, marriage is about loving my wife, whoever that is. It's like, no, it, I, I love my wife by knowing her and by, by relating to her and, and living with her. And So anyway, theology, when done rightly, it's not an academic exercise. It's vital to the Christian life because God has given you everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called you. Okay, that's important. That's important. And he's given us a very specific vehicle for that knowledge. And so... Um, The next verse. So so we see that God has given us grace and peace and everything we need through the knowledge of Jesus. And that brings us to the critical question. How do we know him? How do we know him? What has he given us to help us know him? Because if that's how he provides everything I need, I want to I want to take advantage of it in every way possible. I want to know him and I want to to understand what he's doing in the world and in me. And Peter gives us an answer you might not predict. He has given us precious and very great promises. So precious promises. So the way I know him is he has given me promises. We need to wrestle with that. I, I think there's a parallel between verses 3 and 4. If you look at 3 and 4, um, in verse 3 we see that we receive everything we need for life and godliness through knowledge. And in verse 4, we see that we become partakers of the divine nature through promises. I think those are corollaries. I think that's just a clarifying restatement of the same thing. Um, So we have everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. And we become partakers of the divine nature through the promises. I think that's just a restatement. And the reason I say that is because... Look at how Peter defines becoming a partaker of the divine nature. He, he tacks on a little clarifying phrase there. Being a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And then the next verse, he goes on talking about adding virtue and self-control and godliness to your faith. And so I think becoming a partaker of the divine nature means becoming like God in our in our practical experience in living every day, resting in him, walking with him, knowing him, we become like him. And there's some way that these promises are critical to that. They're the vehicle by which we take part of that. And so the last question we need to ask today is, how do those promises help us know God? How does that work? How do we know him through the promises? Um, I, I won't get caught up on this, but you may ask yourself, which promises? Are there specific promises Peter is talking about? And there may be some promises that specifically relate to this idea he's talking about of us becoming holy. 
But I think if you pressed him, and I think if you read the rest of the New Testament, you get an idea that, that these promises are all the good things God has promised to his people, all the promises he has made to his people. Um, in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And so I, I think through Christ we come to the scripture and we find promises of good or promises of what God will do, and we say yes and amen. Do that. I trust that. I believe that you will do that. I believe that is true. Um, so that's that's a little insight into how we do that. So how does that work practically in my life? What is unique about a promise that makes it the perfect vehicle for me to know God? And I think it's directly related to the nature of what a promise is. Right? What's a promise? A promise is just an assurance of something that's either happening right now that you can't see. For example, if I say, I promise I'm telling the truth. Well, you can't see that. You know, there's no green light or red light on top of my head that says he's telling the truth or he's lying. So I say, I promise I'm telling the truth right now. Okay, And, and you, you can't see that, but you hear me assure you of that. So it's an assurance of something that's either happening right now that you can't see or it's a guarantee of something that will happen in the future. But either way, here's the crux of the matter. The promise is only as good as the character of the person making it, right? When you buy a house, if you've ever purchased a house, one of the documents you sign is a promissory note, right? It's a, a mortgage note. And essentially what you're saying to the bank who's lending you money, you're saying, hey, I promise I'll pay you back. I'm good for this. It's a, it's a glorified IOU, right? I'm giving my word that you're loaning me this money, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you back. And I'm guessing if you've bought a house anytime recently, you didn't just go to the lawyer's office, you know, and sit down at the closing table and then call the bank and say, hey, I'm buying a house right now. I need a couple hundred thousand dollars. Can you guys get it over here in a few minutes? Doesn't work like that, right? They don't, they don't send the courier over here. Here's your briefcase with $200,000. No, you, you should have gone a couple of months before that and talked with them and said, hey, I'm going to need to borrow some money. And then what are they going to do? They're going to check your credit, right? They're going to make sure that you've, you've been faithful to honor your financial commitments in the past. And they're going to ask for bank statements, and they're going to dig through those, and they're going to make sure you've got money coming in. And they're going to look at all these other documents. They want your tax records and all these things because they want to make sure that you can deliver on this promise that you're about to make to them. So they investigate your character, and as a result, if it meets their standard, they trust you. With that money, they, they get, make you the loan just on you signing a sheet of paper saying, hey, I promise I'll pay it back. Hey, that's, you see where I'm going here? God has given us promises all over Scripture. And some of them are things that he guarantees that he will do in the future without regard to what you do. Sometimes God says, I will come and I will do this and you'll like it. Whether you're, whether you're involved in it or not, whether you're on board or not, you will be a part of this. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord one day, whether they like it or not, right? That's a promise. God is going to do that, okay? Sometimes it's conditional. He says, hey, I'll do this if you do this, if, if you meet this, this requirement of humility or mercifulness, right, or faithfulness, then I'll do these things for you, um, and then some of them are just statements that this is the way things are, whether you see it or not. That's a promise, right, where God says, um, hey, it feels bad right now. It feels rough, but you don't know everything that's going on. Let me tell you what's really happening up here in the meta narrative, as Mitch says. Let me tell you what's really going on here. And even though you feel like this is a bad thing, I promise you it's a good thing. I promise you this is this is going to work out in the end the right way. And so the, the key thing about all those promises is regardless of if they're conditional or if they're you know, just about something God's going to do or if they're just about the nature of things that we can't see, any way you spin it, they all have a future element in common. So even the promise that things are not as they seem, that's contingent on the future. It's something that you have to trust right now. I have to believe 
Even though this hurts right now, God is saying this is a good thing. I have to believe that, and in the future, I trust that I will see that this was a good thing. They all have this future orientation. I have to trust what he's telling me so that I can move forward in this relationship with him. And it's that future element that makes promises the perfect vehicle for God to give himself to us. Because a promise requires faith based on the character of the one making it. Okay, It's not a blind leap. It's a calculated trust that God says, here's what I'm going to do, or here's the way things are, or here's what you should do. And we look at that and we say, that's, that's a promise. He's going to do something good if I will trust him here. He's going to deliver me from this if I will trust him, if I will wait patiently on him and not try to deliver myself right now, or whatever it is. God makes these promises for the future, and that's the perfect vehicle for us to know him because it requires that I I do trust him, that I exercise faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. In the future, he is the rewarder. He will do good things for you if you trust him now, okay? That's critical for us knowing God, And, and here's the distinction I'll make. God could just say, here's a list of attributes. This is who God is. I am holy and righteous and just and loving and merciful and kind and gracious. And he could just give you that and say, worship me. Or he could just say, here's what I've done. Worship me. And he does those things, right? He does give us lists of what he's like, his characteristics. He does give us recollections of deeds he's done and he does say worship me but i think the purpose of those things he's kind of tied them all together in these promises let me just read this to you because i when i get off script i could start running in circles um in fact he has done that he has given us lists of attributes and he has given us a collection of his deeds Much of the Bible is simply a recounting of the things God has done for and through his people in history. If you've read Numbers recently, I just got through Numbers and I'm in Deuteronomy now. And it's just the story of Israel leaving Egypt and finding their way to the promised land. And it's just a recounting of all that God did for them and through them. And so God gives us that. And throughout the Bible, he gives us other places where he just says, I am the Lord and I am like this. Right? And those things certainly require some measure of faith. They require mental assent, and they require some faith that what you're reading in the Bible is really what God has said, that the Bible is reliable and that it is true. But there's a difference of quality. There's a difference between assenting in faith to something that you've read in the Bible, some story about God or some list of attributes about God, and then putting your skin in the game by saying, I will trust you with my life right now. And I will trust you with my future and with my children. And I will trust that you will deliver on this thing that you've said you will do in the future that I don't see right now. There's a, a qualitative difference there. You, you see that? I can read God says I'm like this and I can say I agree with that. But there's a whole other thing for me to say, you know what? I'm not going to spend this money on this thing that would make me comfortable and happy Instead, I'm going to give it over here because, God, I trust that you will remember that and you will reward me one day for this, this sacrifice, this generosity. So I'm, I'm hurting myself a little bit now, trusting that you're going to deliver on your promise. Now I've got skin in the game. Now there's something contingent in my life on that. Um, and, and in my mind, I think that's a lot of the reason God has given us the stories in the Old and New Testament. That's why he gives us these list of attributes. He's, he's revealing his character to us so that we will believe what, he's gonna, what he said he's going to do in the future. Um, let me give you an example from Psalm 77. Psalm 77, 7 through 15, Asaph says, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. So Asaph is in a tough place here. 
He's having a crisis moment. He feels like God has forgotten to be gracious. Has he stopped keeping his promises? And what does he do? He says, I'm going to remember what he's done. I'm going to look back at what he's done so that I can trust that he will do what he said he's going to do. Okay, so in large part, I think the Bible, here's a maybe a memorable phrasing for you. The Bible is a record of the acts of God designed to show us the character of God that we may believe the promises of God. You follow that? The Bible is a record of the acts of God designed to show us the character of God that we may believe and trust the promises of God. And that's how you grow in the right knowledge of God. You understand who he is, what he's done. You look at that and you say, okay, based on all of that, can I trust him? Can I trust him with tomorrow? Can I make this decision right now knowing that he will deliver on this specific promise? And, and you do that. You live in light of those things. And, and so let me just wrap up here by trying to get practical. Let's get down in the nitty-gritty. How does this look on Monday morning? Okay. Um, I know we spent some time up here trying to understand how these things work. Let's get into real life. What does it mean to believe the promises of God? And I think it means you find specific things God has said about what he has done or is doing or will do, and then you live as if those things are done. They are, they are true, finished. It's done. That's the reality of the universe, and that's how I'm going to live, as if that is the reality of the universe, even if my experience tells me differently. Okay? Promise. Sometimes I can't see what's going on, and I have to take someone's word that this is really what's happening, even though it looks like this. Right? That's, that's what it means. I believe that God has done or is doing or will do what he says, even if my experience says something differently. Um, I think it's no, it's no coincidence that, that the Bible calls Satan the father of lies, right? And that Hebrews 3 says that we are often hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice this contrast. We know God through trusting his promises that what he said is true. And what is Satan doing? He is lying. He is deceiving. He is telling untruths to us. Okay, And, and this, this is what we battle all the time. And so the last practical little piece I'll give you is um, what do you do when Satan is lying to you? You go find that specific promise you look for a promise and you cling to it. You say, God, my, everything in me feels like this is true. But you have said in your word, this is true. I'm going to trust you and not my own experience here. And the best analogy I could think of for this is, is um, anybody ever seen the movie Twister? Remember that movie? Excellent movie. I highly recommend it. Really good. There's a scene at the end where these tornado chasers are looking for um, you know, they're trying to chase down this massive tornado and they catch it and then it catches them. Right. <laughs> they like run up on it. Oh, shoot. What have we done? And so they turn and they're like trying to run from this tornado and they run into a well house and they find these pipes sticking up out of the ground. And they look and they say, these pipes go at least 30 feet down. Maybe we can strap ourselves to them and survive. And so they take these straps and they tie themselves to these pipes and the storm blows through and rips the well house from around them, right? Lifts them off the ground and in real life they would you know, probably be dismembered and all of that. But, but in the movie, it's great because it's just an analogy. Um, they, they get lifted off the ground and then the tornado blows through and then they're sitting there just looking at the peaceful, serene landscape after the tornado has, has destroyed it. And I think... That's our life, okay? Um, <laughs> sorry. Whether you see it or not, there are storms headed your way. You may be in the storm right now. There are tornadoes of doubt, tornadoes of anxiety, tornadoes of lust and temptation, tornadoes of greed and exhaustion and suffering. Every one of those is potentially a lie telling you. Doubt is, is your flesh saying, I don't know if I could really believe what God said. I don't know if what he said is true is really true. Or lust says, God has said, don't lust. Don't 
pursue a woman in your mind, right? Don't, don't have impure thoughts. God has said that, and he has given you all these sayings about you will, your life will be better. You will know me more. You will honor me more if you'll do this. Your flesh comes along and says, no, you're, you're going to be miserable unless you think those thoughts. You're not going to sleep tonight unless you lust. Trust me on this. Or gluttony says, I'm not going to be happy until I have that second piece of cake. Not going to be happy. I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to think all night, why didn't I have the second piece of cake? Right? And in that moment, you've got to say, am I going to believe this or am I going to believe the promises of God? Am I going to trust in that? And so as those storms come, what do you do? God has given us pipes that go deep into the earth. They are his promises. Okay? And you strap yourself to that. And you say, even though I'm miserable right now, I feel like I'm coming apart at the seams I'm going to trust that what you have said is better and truer and more reliable than what I feel right at this moment. I'm going to trust in that promise. Okay? God has given his word that regardless of what you perceive to be going on in the world or in your own life, there is more than meets the eye. He has promised that he will right every wrong, that he will judge with equity. He has promised that in Christ your sins will not be counted against you because Christ paid for them. And you have been given his righteous standing before God. He has promised that if he has begun a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. And he has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. And so strap yourself to those promises because you're going to get blown around. There's going to be a storm and a storm after that storm. But every waking moment, strap yourself to these promises. Find more, find more. Just accumulate them and say, I'm building my life on this. I'm clinging to these things. And when those storms blow through, you will not be shaken. Okay? And, and in doing that, you will know God in a way that you, you couldn't fathom before. You will say, Lord, I didn't know you were that good. I didn't know you would deliver that way. I didn't know you were going to provide that way. But because I trusted you, because I waited for you, because I, I believed you and I saw your provision, now I know more about you than I could have ever known on the other side of that. And that's how we know him. And in knowing him, everything pertaining to life and godliness is granted to us. That we receive grace and peace multiplied in our hearts. And we live that out in practical holiness. Okay, but that's for next week. So just strap yourself to those promises of God. And, um, and just watch how your knowledge of him just revolutionizes everything going on inside of you. So let me pray. Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that your, your character is such that we can depend on what you say. We can trust what you say. Father, thank you that um, you have not required of us that we be righteous to merit your favor. But you have given us righteousness in Christ. And may we believe that. May we believe that that is how you have provided for us. Father, that is, that is a promise. That we look at the world and, and our natural instinct says... The people who are better wind up with more reward. And in your word, you say, no, the people who rest in Christ, the people who trust in this substitutionary atonement, those are the people I will reward. And, and Father, that requires us to trust that word. It requires us to look at the world, and when we see things that don't jive with our experience, that we have to say, but God has said, and I will trust it. And so please help us to do that. Make your name great in us um, as we trust your promises and live by them. It's in Christ's name. Amen.